it honestly, it's like provided me the relationships I have really craved in my life, you know, where it's like the friendships I have built from co-ops have been very long lasting and very beautiful. And I feel really grateful for all of them that I'm in. That's Sersha Maloney. She is part of a growing national movement toward cooperative living. So my name is Sersha Maloney. I use she, her, hers, and they, them, theirs. And I live in Denver, Colorado, and I work for the Denver Public Library. I'm Chris Farrell. And I'm Twyla Dang. And this is Small Change, Money Stories from the Neighborhood. Sersha is a peer navigator at the Denver Public Library. Since we love libraries, we had to know what a peer navigator did. Yeah, so what I do as a peer navigator is I help connect people um, to, I connect, help connect people to the library. Primarily, my focus is folks experiencing homelessness with an emphasis on working with youth of color and queer and trans youth. And so I try to connect people to services, and I also um, create programs and events um, for marginalized communities so as to connect them to the library. That's really cool. Now, the reason we wanted to meet with Sersha is that she lives in a cooperative house in Denver. A cooperative home looks like any other home in the neighborhood. But cooperative housing is shared housing. The people living in the home share responsibilities for maintaining and owning the home. The residents of the home are members of the cooperative, which owns the whole property. The rules for cooperative homes vary by state and locality, but the basic outline for cooperative shared housing remains the same. Co-ops, and co-op is shorthand for cooperative homes, are a community. When I first moved down, so I lived in Boulder before Denver, and as is the case in most towns that are somewhat popular, rent is very unaffordable. Um, and trying to find a place to live. And co-ops really struck me because I was looking for a place, a community that I could trust that would offer lower rates of rent, but also community. Because I wasn't looking for out of it, just an experience that was just like casual roommates, but intentional communities. As a young trans feminine person, um, I had recently in those years, not been as close to my family and wasn't really connected to family at that time. And so getting to be part of a co-op was in a way finding another social support system too. And so I was looking for many things out of housing, community, affordability, and a safe place to be. So this is a very different perspective than looking for an affordable rental. Yeah, definitely. Because it's the community is like the top of the emphasis. You know, like I had to do an interview with the co-op I wanted to belong to. And I lived at my first one for three years. And then I moved to Denver into another collective for four years called Wholesome House. And then you went on to start your own. Yeah, I did. So it's called the Sapling Collective. Um, we're a collective house of six people, all of whom are non-binary or trans identified, and the majority of whom are folks of color, um, of many different races and 
what I was looking for is I was like, I want to create a co-op that like really centers the the experiences of folks who are really finding it hard to find affordable places to live in Denver that also feel safe and communal. And so that was the intention behind it. And so I actually bought the house I live in with two other people who live at another co-op who one day are hoping um, to sell some of their share of the house, the equity, to folks who live in here. Co-ops are a smart way legally for people who aren't related to one another to share ownership in the home. As a stakeholder, you have equity in the co-op reflecting your ownership in the overall property. So tell us a bit about how you found the house and how you financed the house. And um, well, I have more questions, but I'll stop there. It's sort of like, how, how, how did you find the house and how did you finance the house? For the first part, how we found the house um, is during the pandemic, Kyle and Kathleen, the two other people I own the collective with, um, approached me and they're like, we want to help start a co-op. This has been really powerful for us. We're looking for a way that's more of a responsible investment because they've gained wealth for their own house owning experience um, at Wholesome House that they own with their co-op mates. They actually, all the people who live in that co-op own that co-op. And they were looking for something that was both a good investment in like community and also was financially sound. And so during the pandemic, we started meeting weekly and looking at houses, creating a contract. We actually have an LLC together. So before we closed on the house, we created an LLC contract so that we would have good terms with each other. So in case of like, whatever happens, you know, divorce, whatever that there would be some financial stability and that it wouldn't fall apart if like something between the three of us happened, you know, that there was stability. An LLC is shorthand for limited liability company. The LLC is a popular legal arrangement for many businesses, especially smaller ones. And we found the house actually rather luckily. So we've been, we're, we're looking on all the different sites, Zillow with our agent, everything every day and we find it that pops up on Thursday and we make um on Thursday during I want to say July or August and we make a bid on the same week on Saturday um because you have to act really fast and how we were able to do that is we had an agent who was really fantastic Sarah Wells who specialized in co-ops and really helped us navigate the process and also helped us make a skilled bid because we what we did was an, es, um, an escalating bid. So we made a bid where it was like, okay, they're going to, they're like, this is the price of the house. And then people made it that kind of, we underbid at first um, by $12,000. And then, but we said, we will go up $2,000 more up to... $670,000 than anyone else who bids. And people just bid at the asking price at six sixty, dollars and we got it at six sixty two. Do you feel like that's a reflection of um, like the ability to do that is something that comes directly out of having like a cooperative living arrangement The you know, that this is something that you wanted to do, but you would have, you might not have had that understanding of how it works or even the skill set to go through that process without it. 
Definitely. Um, as a first time home buyer and first generation home buyer in my family, I didn't know the skill. It's like I theoretically knew about the word mortgage before I got into this process. You know, I was like, that's a concept. People do that. Um, I don't know if I'll ever do that. And to be honest, I didn't think that homeownership would be a possibility for me in a city like Denver. We'll be back with more small change. Small Change is supported by Thrivent through generous support from the Thrivent Foundation. Thrivent is driven by a higher purpose to help people achieve financial clarity and to make the most of all they've been given. Small Change is also supported in part by the McKnight Foundation, which works to advance a more just, creative, and abundant future where people and planet thrive. Learn more at McKnight.org. Welcome back to Small Change. No matter where you live these days, the price of buying a home is out of reach for growing numbers of people. Young adults and people living on low and unstable incomes in particular find that they're priced out of the market. A major attraction of co-ops is that it makes home ownership a realistic option by allowing people to pool their resources. Part of what was powerful about the co-op experience is, one, Kyle and Kathleen had already had this model already set up beforehand and they invited me in and they also have like this knowledge I didn't have. And I think co-ops are really good in like sharing that knowledge that actually turns out to be really powerful and that access being like, oh, like I wouldn't have known, like we have to get pre-approved for the loan um, to be taken seriously. And all these other things, I think also like having a, we all found an agent together. And I think the process would have just felt very overwhelming for me because I think a lot of it is not only the access, but it's an incredibly emotional process actually, as it turns out, because you have to like invest a lot of time and energy and a lot of things that don't come through, but sharing that with other people was really helpful. So I'm really intrigued by this idea about sharing knowledge. You know, I think a lot of people will you know, think about cooperative housing, collective housing, and they'll understand, okay, you're sharing some of the costs, like utilities. But the the sharing of knowledge, I think that may be underappreciated. And talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so I think like co-ops, I think they're a really great way of creating access. When I think of like the housing market today in the United States, I see that it's not only very inaccessible, but it feels rigged in that it like privileges certain folks who are trying to buy houses and disadvantages others, you know, like historically, like communities of color, historically queer and trans people who like lead different types of lives than compared to heterosexual and cisgender people, like who might not follow the same path of get married, buy a house, you know? And so for me... I think the knowledge sharing came out of just like being like lots of different people with lots of different like class, as well as just experiences in life coming together with their ability to problem solve and access resources. One of the things I think that's powerful about collective living is that you don't feel like you have to do it alone. And I think it's funny to live in a city that what I hear so often from so many people is so many people feel alone. You know, that they don't have these, this access, these resources, and that they honestly often have to do these like big financial decisions 
like they can have support of others, but they don't have like a community that supports them through it, if you will. And co-ops really did that for me. Like I bought it with two other people. I got to talk to other people who had done models like this before. I had an agent who was informed about the process and like really invested and interested in it, you know, and interested in like creating non-traditional, allowing non-traditional home buyers access to the market. And I think that knowledge I wouldn't have had if I, for instance, just lived with roommates who like I may or may not have known well, you know, but the primary reason for living with them was for to split costs rather than to like create lifelong relationships. Let's take a moment here. What's striking is not just the knowledge sharing that Sersha is talking about. That's important. But she's also describing the creation of a community where it's safe to try something different, to learn something new. Community is often a vague term. Sersha's experience is a concrete example of why community matters so much. And so is this your third cooperative? Yeah, it is. So I've lived first in the Radish co-op, and it's kind of like a funny name. Rad-ish. So it was like a whole thing. Um, and our little, we had a little radish as our little symbol on our Facebook page. And then I lived in another one in Denver called Wholesome House. And then I lived in, and now the one I live in is called The Sapling. So three. So, but the majority of my life, and I'm 26, since I've been 20 years old, I have lived in co-ops concurrently since that age. So when you were Working, you know, the contract, what went into that? I mean, because you've had experience, what was important to you uh, in creating a new co-op? What was important to you in that, you know, that you wanted in that contract that would reinforce community? One of the things I thought of a lot is I didn't want, having grown up where I had been evicted as a child and such, I didn't want experience of like as I became figuratively an owner of a house with folks who are non-owners right now who I'm we're working on trying to create a relationship so that they can buy into the house and become co-owners. I wanted to have an ethical relationship with folks knowing that there would be a um, power imbalance to some extent, right? You know, because like I think the conventional rate relationship sometimes between a lot of landlords and tenants feels pretty extractive, you know, where it's just like landlords are taking things, maybe they'll repair things. They're going to try to take your deposit from you, that kind of thing. And like, that's not the case for everyone. And I've actually known many good people who do like conventional landlord dynamics that also still work out very well. But I wanted to make sure there was protection for people because I, when I've had that protection for myself in the club where other folks owned it and I didn't, it really helped me feel secure and housing stable. And so what those protections looked like in our contract was like that we can't sell the house for 10 years to an outside member. So if someone who doesn't live in the house, we can't sell it for the first 10 years. The other was like making a fixed rental rate. So the average over the course of years, the average rate of increase in rent for a Denver place is about 10%. If you look every year, if you look at the course of time, like they've done estimates over like 10 years that every year rent will be raised 10%. And at our house, 
um, the maximum it can be raised a year is 3%. And also like looking up to this co-ownership thing, like right now we're trying to apply to grants where we could create a matching fund. Like if someone bought like two to $4,000 into a house, maybe we could get a grant that matches them for two to $4,000. I like and that. Yeah. And so the idea is like, cause there's all this money and people are like, what are housing solutions? And I think that to me, I'm like, how do we create, like this experience has been very powerful and has set me in a really good place for my life in terms of wealth, you know, like having a house is like the most successful predictor for generational wealth. And I want to have kids in my future too. And I want to be able to provide for them as well and create a secure environment. And I'm wondering how do I share that opportunity for me? And so I think like that was a big part in the contract is that was a huge thing we wrote. The other thing was just like being like very transparent about like that, like we're writing this financial contract, but we're also all humans that are living in it. And how do we create protections? Like, like how do we create protections if like I get married and maybe I get married and I get divorced, you know, or like Kyle and Kathleen, like they get married, they have a kid. What does that look like if one of them dies, da, 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 you know? And it's part of it was having those like slightly morbid conversations. But what that ultimately led me to do is feel more secure. Because I think that like that allowed me the opportunity to be like, okay, things can go wrong in our personal lives, but that doesn't mean jeopard- that has to jeopardize the house for myself or for the people who live in it. And so those are the big deciding factors in the the contract. It also just like helped us itemize like how much of the house each of us owns. And it created an LLC so that we can do things like, like taxes, you know, like we also run an Airbnb in the basement of the house. So there's six members and an Airbnb And so it creates a layer of protection for us when it comes to liability as well. The structure of a cooperative home as a business, an LLC, highlights the big difference between renting with a group of people you don't know and building an intentional community. An LLC protects everyone's ownership rights, and it shields their personal assets from any company liabilities. Of course, not everyone enters into the co-op as an owner. It's often an option for renters to join the co-op and eventually become owners. Where did the name Sapling come from? Yeah, it's kind of of a cute name. So myself and my first uh, housemate, who was one of the co-founders of the house, Caitlin McGuigan, we were talking and I was like, what should we name it? And we like went for all these names and we we wanted something that didn't sound like too dorky but like also kind of cool and but like not pretentious you know because I feel like there's a lot of names of new places in Denver that are just like they just feel like ritzy and um the idea of sapling came from that um like a tree that sapling is a community um that is rooted in Denver aiming to grow and so that was the idea is that like from one sapling, a community grows. I like that. Mm, that is I like nice. that a lot. I really yeah. do. Can I ask you really quickly? Um, you've brought yeah. up a couple of times the idea of safety. 
And I think a lot of us, when we think about housing and think in terms of safety, we don't think of the internal of safety. We think of it externally, like, is it a nice neighborhood or do we have streetlights? Do we, you know, uh, are there, you know, are there services in place to protect our homes? But the the idea within a co-op of what safety can mean, um, I think is very different, but also really valuable. Can you talk a little bit about that? So I think like safety comes up as a really important topic for me because there's often spaces in the city that I like simply walk around and don't always feel safe due to like my trans identity. That sometimes people will target that part of who I am, you know, and like thus a dangerous situation comes up. And like, I really want to like put that like really clearly, like, that can happen in any neighborhood. I think like transphobia is a culture-wide problem, not this like a neighborhood by neighborhood problem. And so for me, seeking safety, having grown up in a house where like, like domestic violence was a reality of my growing up situation. I think a lot about like, how do we create houses that aren't only like violence safe, free spaces, but are a place to return to. That's not just a house that you live in, but it's a home. When you live with other people, like involves like creating community agreements. And so one of the ways we architected that was through creating this thing called the sapling house agreements, which differs from the leases that everyone else is on, where it's like, what are our values? How do we create the space we want to? And part of that is for a lot of us, you know, like things that really felt important for us to name in the house building process is that like in the world and everywhere systems of oppression exist, you know, from like racism to misogyny to transphobia and that those endanger the everyday lives of people in whatever ways or make them feel unsafe, you know, not just uncomfortable. And so we looked at like going beyond like what, like, like the Fair Housing Act, where it's like, we don't discriminate on the basis of that, but just like being like, this is what a safe, like what does a safe space for members of color look like in the sapling? What does a safe space look like for trans members? And being really specific, that was a huge thing. And I think also just having like open conversations, like I think also in internal in houses, I think like Substance use and addiction is a really big problem in the United States that affects the home lives of many people. And one of the things that we do at our house is we open talk about our relationships to those things. And there was actually a moment where like a community member kind of acted out a turn while on, on the substance and we got to talk about it. And it really helped things feel better and heal in the house where there was that disruption. And so I think it like the idea of safety is like such a layered topic. And so like the community of the sapling provides in it because it provides like a structure for people to come together, but not having to go to systems like that don't feel as accessible to many of us, for instance, like the carceral system or the police system, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, many of us don't feel like that's a great way of providing safety for our community. And like, although the ideal is that like we would have that support, it's just not where we're at in the in this moment of 2021 in Denver. Um, and so 
the idea is like, how do we take these lessons we have learned from activist spaces, workspaces, other home spaces, and friendships and groups we belong to and bring them into the house so that we have a more nuanced and good relationship with safety. So this is this really goes beyond the idea of just being like having rules and saying like these yeah. are the rules and this is the you know if you break the rule it works this way this really is like a a framework for living yeah yeah that's a great way of putting it Twyla. i um i think that like the yeah it's like because what we've realized is like one of our things is like while there are things were set in place where like folks could get exited if they act out of turn in such a way, you know, if they act violent towards another member. If there's like, like continuous racist remarks made by a member towards another, or just like things that make that person feel unsafe for whatever reason, you know, it's like, can't always anticipate what's going to happen, you know, in life. It's the idea is like, we create this like, like that's why we call them agreements instead of rules because we're not going to like the usual framework of rules is like you get punished if you break the rules and it's more of like here's what we're all signing up into how do we create that space and i think it's just one of the evolving things and i think maybe to a lot of your listeners they were like that sounds like a lot of work and i think the funny thing is i think that happens in every home space just whether you intentionally or don't intentionally have it is just how that space works. And not to say one model is better than the other, but what I have found in my life that having the intentionality and the structure like makes me feel really, really good in my house, you know? And I know that even for folks who live in what might be called like more conventional settings where it's like a family or roommates or other things, I notice that there are rituals and agreements that folks play out that might not just be written down but are there, you know, where it's like, we're having family dinner and that's a ritual of connection and an attempt to create safety in a family, you know, too. And so I think it just like, for us, it's just very explicit, if that makes sense. I mean, in a way you have your own family dinner. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, we all just like, you know, like shoot the shit. Um, Sorry, wrong word for Rachel. (laughs) You're all right. um, (laughs) That's okay. but um it's more of this like this creation of like oh it's like hang out and like cook for each other and that's just like a thing that also spontaneously happens but at least once a week but often it happens two to three times a week where we'll all eat together and it's not like oh it's required that you all eat together at the same time but it it's only required the once one time a week for everyone to be at the same place at the same time for um for a total of an hour and a half to two hours, like with the first hour being dinner and the second hour being meeting. Yeah, but it, I find it's, re- I mean, breaking bread with people is just the classic way of creating community, right? Yeah, it is. Is there a connection? Like, uh, is, is there an open relationship or open connection among the different co-op living houses that you are affiliated with or that you know of in the area? Is there, does that information go from, within a house to sharing among the different houses or people potentially setting up houses? Yeah, yeah definitely. So I think like are dope is they also like, they don't become community centers, but they do help create community because like all the people who have friends or partners, you know, of a house, they like, 
they like start to hear about and they're like, oh, that's interesting. And then the other co-ops, like for instance, Sarah Wells lives and owns part of Queen City Cooperative and was our agent. Sarah Wells is the cooperative housing expert and real estate agent Sersha mentioned earlier in our conversation. She lives in a co-op. She gets it. And she's also a real estate agent that's really about it. So she's like an incredible asset to the community in that way. And I think connections are being made all the time. Like my friend and and an owner of another co-op called Limbs of Liberation, who I talked a little bit on the email, are talking about like, how do we as co-op owners create it so that like folks can buy into the house, you know? How do we do that legally? How do we do it financially? How do we do it socially? And so like we connect too. And then there's like, I think that the pandemic has definitely affected the relationships between the cops just because we couldn't see each other. But there are those ties, you know, like we will go to each other's events and like, like I, we have got referrals about other people who've applied to other co-ops to our house and done the same to others, you know, where it's like, oh, like, it doesn't seem like you'd be a good fit for this house or we don't have space right now, but we'll send you over there. So there is that, like, relationship. There are co-ops all over the country, and with the home affordability crisis, interest in shared cooperative living is growing. The rules and regulations do vary by state and locality. For example, Denver co-ops are typically structured as LLCs, but in some other cities, setting up co-ops as nonprofit organizations is popular. At this point in our conversation, we had to ask a question we ask everyone we interview. Where did you learn about money? I think I learned about it as, at an early age as a scarce resource that is unavailable and very scary. And so when I was a little kid, that was a big thing. I think as I've grown older, I've learned. And like one of the big things my mom was always big about, she's like, never get a credit card because that is always bad. And, da, da, da. and as I've grown older, what I've learned about financial systems and money in general. But I often think less about money and more about wealth these days. And money is important. Like, it's no joke, but I find it as one component of a bigger system is I'm like, oh, like, what's like, the what I've learned is that there's like good types of debt to have and that like a mortgage is a form of debt, technically, but it's an asset and like, Owning in a house over time eventually gives you wealth that you can't, like, I never even realized. Like, I didn't realize, like, that, like, owning a house is, like, builds wealth in, like, multiple different ways. Where it's, like, it appreciates, you own more of a property, you're not just giving to another landlord, that kind of thing. And I think, like, as I've grown up into my young 20s and 30s, it's, like, being, like, I understand where my fear of money came from because it was a scarce resource for my mother and therefore for myself when I was a little kid. And what I've learned is that there are ways to work things to gain more access. That said, I will say that I feel like money creates a neurosis for all people because I don't know if the human mind is ever fully meant to like be good with it. Like there's a lot of things that it just does strangely to people I notice from the very wealthy to the very poor to the middle class, you know, that whole statistic about how 70% of 
Americans believe they're the middle class, but 70% of Americans aren't statistically part of the middle class, you know, and that's from the very poor to the 1%, you know, and yeah, I think my education for money comes from so many places, but at first came from a place of poverty, but now I'm learning like, oh, like, how do I use this as a tool to create the life I want to lead? And also know that it just like, it's also kind of this like dangerous thing, you know, it's like a necessary demon one has to deal with in the world as we live in it right now and to understand it as such, you know, but not to be afraid of it, but not to be careless around it either. And I love that, you know, as a tool to live the life you want to lead. What have you personally um, found most beneficial in being a part of a cooperative living arrangement? Definitely the learning. I love learning so much. I think like a cop motivated me to learn how to ride a bike. I've learned how to mend through living in a co-op. I've learned how to facilitate meetings, which I think is a vastly underappreciated skill and actually incredibly necessary in all sectors of life. From tech to social work, it's necessary everywhere. I've learned how to like engage in conflict and like have it be generative instead of destructive or toxic, you know, where it's like I can disagree or there may be times when I've hurt someone or, I, or I've been hurt by someone emotionally, but can work through it and preserve the relationship. I've gained friendships. Um, I've gained wealth, wealth gaining opportunities. I've gotten jobs through networking. Honestly, like it has been networking in a way too. Like I've built up like professional skills of resume because I've had housemates who've like helped me out with my resume. Um, And honestly, it's like provided me the relationships I have really craved in my life, you know, where it's like the friendships I have built from co-ops have been very long lasting and very beautiful. And I feel really grateful for all of them that I'm in. Thinking back on what Sersha had to say about cooperative living, we realized that you can hear two very different stories that reflect on and reinforce one another. First, cooperative living is a smart way to lower the cost of owning and maintaining a home, a way to build wealth over time. Second, Cooperative living is a way to build a community that relies on and supports each other, that offers a safe space to grow and engage with your community. Cooperative living creates opportunities for building an intentional community that reimagines what a good life and financial stability could look like. That's genius. Thank you for listening. Small Change is a production of Minnesota Public Radio and American Public Media. Small Change would not have been possible without the work of many people, including Executive Producer Stephanie Curtis, Editor Alex Simpson, Intern Arshia Hussein, Producer Veronica Rodriguez, Original Music is by Dexter Wolf. You can find other Small Change episodes and find resources for more information about money by going to our website, smallchainstories.org. You'll also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 